No, it's not Easter. <laughs> I, I really believe God speaks as we study his word. And then on Wednesday nights, we've been uh, working through 1 Corinthians. And I said, Dan, I'd really like to speak about the resurrection. And Dan said, okay, Easter. He's a little bit faster than me. And I said, no, it's not Easter. What are you talking about? But he, he's, read, it's okay, don't worry about it. We got this. <laughs> we have a good song or two about the resurrection of Jesus, don't we? What an incredible uh, set of music this morning. Rosalind Picard has the prestigious Doctor of Science degree and directs the Media Laboratory at MIT. In 2007, she debated another MIT professor who directs the Artificial Intelligence Lab. Their topic seemed like it belonged more in a sci-fi novel than in an academic institution. They were answering the question, can robots become human? Can robots become human? In other schools and places that might seem funny or ridiculous, but at MIT, AI is serious business. I watched this debate and it was fascinating. First of all, it was the sweetest, most kind and funny debate that I think I've ever heard. If only presidential debates could be sweet <laughs> and kind and funny. If only. And as the, the two MIT professors answered the question, can robots become human, it, faith really played a big role. And what really got me was how Rosalind closed her remarks. She said, when I was an atheist, I just assumed all that scripture stuff was bunk and religious people were weirdos, stupid, and all kinds of other things. She went on, I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody, but this is what I thought. One day someone actually challenged me to read the scripture. And I thought, well, I guess I should read it since it's a famous book and I shouldn't be the kind of person who just throws things out without having looked at them. So I, I actually sat down and read it and was amazed at what I found. It gradually transformed me. I read it four or five times privately before I would ever fess up that I was starting to believe in it. Because I just couldn't believe that I could believe that. But it did a number on me and I began to change. I just couldn't believe that I could believe that. Have you ever thought about what Christians ask someone to believe when we ask them to come to Christ? What our faith must sound like to someone who was raised without any faith background. Think about that. We believe donkeys can talk if God wants them to. We believe water can be turned into good wine. But then as Baptists say, but don't drink it. <laughs> and concerning our passage, we believe in a Savior that was dead but then came back to life. And then, oh yeah, he floated up into heaven. Now, there are good reasons to believe all those things, but can you imagine how foreign all of that must sound to someone who's never believed or been around Christianity for very long? Rosalind Picard says it perfectly. When I was an atheist, I just assumed all that scripture stuff was bunk. Religious people were weirdos, stupid, and all kinds of other things. I wonder what she meant by all kinds of other things. What really gets interesting then is how we Christians behave when we meet someone who does not believe. Now, you're an incredible church, and I think you behave pretty well. But I've met Christians who get mad at non-believers. 
I've met people who were raised with the blessing of Christian parents, and when they meet someone who was not raised in a Christian home, instead of trying to help that person, they're mad at him or her. Now, I don't understand that. On what basis could I possibly be mad at someone who didn't have parents like I had? You know, I'm not sure if we all realize this, but none of us had anything to do with choosing our parents. I've met others who, when they meet someone who has honest questions about faith, they command that person just be quiet and believe. There's almost this shaming effect that happens to people who have honest questions about faith. Well, this type of behavior is just not biblical. Jesus helped people believe. He answered their questions. On Wednesday nights at prayer meeting, we have been studying this book of 1 Corinthians for only about a year or so. And the the conclusion is so wonderful. We'll be in chapter 15 if you want to turn there. Paul chooses to leave one main idea in the minds of the Corinthian believers. This church that can't agree on hardly anything. This church that struggles with all kinds of sinful passions. Of all the things Paul could have left in their minds, he takes one of the longest chapters in the Bible and spends it discussing the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the resurrection of those who believe in him. He takes what to my mind is a really strange approach though. He comes at the resurrection backwards. In the passage that Bradley did such a great job of reading a few minutes ago in verses 13, 14, 16, and 17 of chapter 15, 13, 14, 16, and 17, Paul asks the very same question. What if? What if Christ has not been raised? What if there is no resurrection? What if it never happened? This is coming at our faith from a skeptical point of view. Instead of looking down on someone who doesn't believe, Paul climbs into their shoes. Instead of closing the conversation, he climbs into their minds and opens the conversation. This morning, I hope we can do the very same thing. I want each and every one of us this morning to climb into the mind of a skeptic. Perhaps you're here this morning or watching by way of television and you have never fully given yourself to believing in Jesus. I believe God wants to speak directly to you and those questions you might have. You would see that there is a whole lot of evidence for this faith thing. Perhaps you're a believer, but if we were to get honest with each other, you might tell me, Reed, my faith is just really a, a small part of my life. I mean, I believe, read, I come to church, I watch on TV, but I'm not a fanatic. So what, you're saying that I am a fanatic? Well, read, I didn't mean it quite like that, but yeah. Apologetics is as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. This is a message Paul is writing to the church. He's encouraging them. And I hope each of us will find encouragement this morning. Look with me. The apostle asked the skeptical mind to consider three truths about the resurrection. The apostle asked the skeptical mind to consider first the witnesses. Look up at verse 5. I'll read 
I'll read starting in three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. And that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The implication of what he's saying is pretty simple. He's saying, if you don't believe me, go and ask them. He's giving names. He's saying they're mostly all still alive. If you don't believe my witness and my testimony, please go ask, question, investigate. Paul seems to say, I know it sounds crazy. Dead people don't come back to life. I know it. But all we can tell you is what we've seen. Lee Strobel is a journalist. He became a Christian by examining the evidence for and against faith in Christ, thinking he would prove Christianity wrong once and for all, get a great book deal, and instead he became a Christian himself. He developed great faith in Jesus, probably got a better book deal than he would have anyways. Several would-be authors have done the same thing. Josh McDowell, the, the vampire writer, Anne Rice. Strobel discusses how eyewitness testimony can be very convincing to juries and jury trials, but it can also be corrupted. Detectives tell us that when a group of witnesses have witnessed a crime and then have a perfectly aligned story with no holes, they use the same words even, there's a good chance there's been collusion. They've been working together. But when, like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories are basically the same, but they're actually also different. They're unique. They harmonize, but in some different ways. There's even a few problems to work out. That's actually a great sign for honest testimony. But the thing is, Paul is even more open here than the four Gospels. He gives the names of the witnesses, points that there are more than 500, and invites the reader to go and talk to them. Corinth was a wealthy trade town. In Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila had just come to Corinth from Italy. So it's not out of the question to think that the Corinthians might have gone to Jerusalem and interviewed the eyewitnesses themselves. If you look down in verse 15, you see a phrase, false witnesses. False witnesses. The word is taken out of legal vocabulary in the Greek. And Paul is saying, if I'm lying, then also more than 500 eyewitnesses are also lying. Then we have lied before God. We've lied before the Sanhedrin's religious court. We've lied before the Roman authorities. Paul is saying, if we're lying, then send the authorities to come and lock us up. Because that would be what we deserve. Maybe you've seen the videos of, we'll call them not so smart criminals. Have you seen one of those videos? My favorites, because I feel so bad for them, are the bank robbers that go in and demand for cash. And I didn't know this either, but there are these new metal protective barriers that can instantly fly up and close off the tellers and cashiers and money from the lobby. Well, this has happened many times since they've been invented, and they've been videoed several times. When that metal barrier comes flying up at the notion that there's a robbery. It's huge, it's fast, it's loud. 
And the robber gets so scared that he immediately turns and sprints for the front door to leave. And he pushes and pushes and pushes on the door, but it won't budge. And he thinks, they've got me. I'm trapped. This new technology has caught me. Until after several minutes of waiting for the police to just arrive and arrest him, someone simply pushes the door the other way from the outside and walks into the lobby. On one of the videos, it's this sweet, nice lady who must be 90 years old walking in. It's really sad, but it's really funny to watch. (laughs) You know, a, a couple of people can tell a group lie and get their story straight. But over 500? Paul would have been the worst criminal in history to say this. Or in truth, he simply would not have said this if he had anything to hide. He says, talk to the witnesses. And second, he says, consider the history in verses 12 to 19. What is really cool to me about this backward reasoning is that he seems to be saying, look, just look around you. Where in the world did all these pesky preachers come from? Where did you, the Corinthian church, where did your faith come from? It was never there before. We can't create something out of nothing. I was thinking about what this sort of reasoning would look like today. And I think it would be like someone coming to you and saying, you know, I don't really believe in Abraham Lincoln. I just don't think that guy existed. And we said, well, look around you. You can know Lincoln lived by seeing his influence. I mean, the penny, whose face is that? Is that Billy Bob? The the larger than life memorial in DC. Who is that tall, gangly fellow? Is that Michael Phelps' granddad? Look at the words of the Emancipation Proclamation. Who said four score and seven years ago at Gettysburg? Goodness, how do you think the civil rights movement happened and the civil war before it? Goodness, look in the White House today. It took forever, but do you think we could have had an African-American president without Lincoln? Maybe. I hope so. But I don't know. All I know is if I'm intellectually honest, i got to look around and say, Lincoln existed. This is reasoning backward from history, but it's, it's powerful proof that the apostle is using here. He's saying, look around you. And you can see sort of on the surface level all the ripple effects of the resurrection of Jesus. It turned the first century upside down. Not only did all the, the false witnesses give up their careers to serve Jesus, but nearly all of them went to their deaths serving him. Paul's story is especially crazy. Verse 9, he says, I was a Christian killer. And look at me now. You tell me how that happened, Paul seems to say. But then these effects just kept multiplying to the the Roman Empire, to the, the height of the Roman Catholic Empire, to almost all of history has been affected because this one man rose from the dead and his grave is empty. To even today, people might say, man, nothing good has come from you Christians, but the facts are so different. Christians have started hospitals. Thousands and thousands and thousands of hospitals. 
universities and schools. Universities were born out of the Christian tradition. Thousands, probably millions of schools. Amount of philanthropic money given by Christians. We marvel at the big givers like Bill Gates or the Carnegie family, but when we compare to the number of orphanages and nonprofits and soup kitchens, Bill Gates starts to look kind of poor. I'm not trying to brag on us Christians, maybe a little bit, but I'm saying where did all that power to do all that come from? One of my favorite books of all time is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It helped me a great deal when I was coming to faith. Well, Kathleen Norris writes the foreword, and and her last words to the foreword of the book are pretty brilliant in my mind. She says, Lewis reminds us with his humor and wit how monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors, how gloriously different the saints How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors, how gloriously different the saints. Lewis is saying something happened that started a new type of civilization when Jesus rose. People don't just give up their money. They don't just give up their lives to start orphanages. For thousands of years, the great great tyrants of history prove that just doesn't happen. But a new type of person was born after the resurrection. All of this to say history points to a reality that got it started. That's why verse 20 he says, in fact, Christ has been raised. Not only is Jesus alive, but for everyone who puts faith in him, simply trust. Everyone who believes and and asks for forgiveness of sin. The promise of the entire scripture, especially the New Testament, is that you too will be raised from the dead. We will have eternal life in our belief in Christ. It's great news, but it's like Paul sort of anticipates where we might go next. Like, okay, I know I was just beginning to convince you Jesus might have risen from the dead, and now I'm really going to mess with your head and say, all of you who believe will raise from the dead too. But he says, think about it. It's not a stretch at all. You've considered the witnesses. You've looked at the history. Now third, consider the mysteries of science. He would call it creation. Look down at verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. The mysteries of science, first, seeds to plants. He's saying you can't see that seed change into a plant, yet you believe it. You put a a dead seed down under the surface of the soil, just like a funeral burial does, and boom, it comes to life. You don't see what happens under there. But why would you doubt a resurrection? A seed is a dead thing that comes to life. All that green vegetation you see everywhere, it came from dead seeds. So a dead human to an alive one? Well, that's not a big deal for God. Look at verse 39. 
All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of birds, and another of beasts, and another of fish. He's saying, consider seeds to plants, then consider animal bodies. Have you seen how different a fish body is from the cheetah? Do you, have you noticed the difference in an elephant and a mosquito? Do you really think a resurrected body is any problem for God? And finally, planetary bodies. Look at verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun and another of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars even differ from star in glory. He's saying, have you seen the sun and the stars lately? What do you mean? God can't do a little resurrection. Those planetary bodies all move up there and we don't burn up. We don't collide. I have uh, several PhD scientists in my Sunday school class. Some days that's a blessing. Other days I feel really dumb. But they tell me that, that every aspect of our scientific method is based on faith. Science doesn't work without several assumptions or faith jumps. First, they believe that the world is ordered. It's orderly, not random. Second, they believe that humanity, by studying that orderly world, can understand it. There's great faith there. Well, cosmologists are, are scientists who study the, the cosmos, the space. And they are telling us that they have realized that the entire universe has been finely tuned. The conditions that allow life in the universe can only occur when cer certain physical constants are at the perfect narrow range. So that if they fall out of range, the universe would have no life at all. In other words, the only way our planet doesn't crash into the sun and the only way the whole universe doesn't collapse on itself and become a big black hole is because of these stable constants in the universe. One of them is the, the constant of expansion. The universe is expansion at, expanding at just the right rate. Another is the gravity. Another is the cosmological constant I know nothing about but know that Einstein used it. And he was smart. It's a fascinating time in the, the scientific community when many are seeing this order that they've been studying and realizing if there is such order, there had to have been someone who ordered it. Many are coming to faith. Many are at least open to the fact that there's a designer. If you ask a Darwinian evolutionist how life began, they, they really don't know. They say maybe a big bang, maybe there were some gases that exploded. We don't know. One serious theory is that life began in crystals. We say, well, where did the first crystals come from? Well, we don't know. Where did the gases come from? Well, we don't know. And many, many serious scientists are saying, maybe there is something out there. Paul is saying this, don't let the enemy convince you that you can't understand resurrection life when there are millions of aspects of the creation that you don't understand. This is God's world. He works miracle after miracle every day to even allow us to breathe. If he can turn seeds to plants, create all these animal bodies, place the galaxies into motion, do you really think a little resurrection from the dead is any problem for him? Corinthians is saying, consider the witnesses, the history, 
the mysteries of creation. And then in verse 20, I love it, it's just, but Jesus did rise from the grave. Not only is it reasonable, but Paul tells the skeptical mind, it is the most reasonable conclusion if we look around us at all. There's simply not another explanation for it all. Tim Keller says it this way, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? If Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept it all. If he didn't rise, then why worry about any of it? I think I came to faith personally first in my heart. I wanted to believe. I was young. It was easy to believe. I did have parents who taught me about Christ. But later, there were some hurts in my life and some outside circumstances that caused my mind to begin to demand proof. It wasn't easy for me anymore to say, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it. I needed to know a little bit more than that. I needed to know, is it reasonable to be a Christian? Is it reasonable to believe the Bible? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there this morning. And those questions are your questions. And there are many others that I couldn't get to this morning, but there are a whole lot of other answers to I couldn't get to. In university, my sort of struggling faith was met with some even more serious challenges. I'm talking professors that seems like they're out of the movies, making fun of Christians every single day. One professor, I had him for environmental science my first year, I'll never forget. He would have you kind of bait the class so that a Christian would raise his hand. He'd have that person stand up and talk for about five seconds. And then he would make that person sit down, demand that the class listen to him, and he would talk about how stupid that person's faith is for the next hour without giving chance for reply. No response, no questions. There was no honesty in what he did to those kids. But it caused me to enter a time of searching and wanting to know, is Christ valid? Is it reasonable? And it put me on a journey that caused me to wholeheartedly fall in love with Jesus. Listen, Jesus says we cannot love him without our minds engaged. As a freshman in college, I had never before allowed my mind to get into this faith thing. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're watching this morning and the Holy Spirit has crawled down into your head and cared enough through Paul to answer one or two of your questions. I invite you to believe today. To believe based on the witness, the history, the science of it all, but still to believe. Because we make a faith jump too. By the way, Paul is not the only one in the Bible who thinks like this. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, what is it? He says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Well, what does it mean, Peter, to honor Christ as holy? Not what I would have thought he was about to say. Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you why you have this hope in you. 
make a defense. The word is apologia, apologetics. It, it means to give reason for our hope. Peter's saying that's what it means to honor Christ as holy, to be ready with the reasons of your mind why you have And I love the end, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Not like you've seen other people debate, with gentleness and respect. 1 Corinthians 15 would seem to ask every Christian believer here, are we ready to crawl down into the minds of our friends and family and neighbors who have serious questions? It's not shameful to ask a question. It's honest. Jesus shared meals with those who had questions. Nicodemus and Zacchaeus, the woman at the well, he helps them believe. Who am I helping to believe? Who are you helping to believe? He would even dialogue with those who were trying to trap him. The Pharisees who were often asking, not out of an honest desire to know the truth, but to push their own agenda, even still, Jesus would talk with them, And he would have these answers that would just leave them stunned. Their mouths would drop. Their skeptical minds had no reply. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and all your strength. I don't know about you, but my story has been that as those pieces come together, there's almost an interplay that helps me love him even more. When I'm loving God with my mind, I want to serve him with all my strength. When I have paused to spend time with him in my soul, my will is quickened and I I care more. What if, Paul is asking, what if Christ was not raised? He says, all this is useless and meaningless and we are the most to be pitied of all people. I think the reverse question is just as powerful. What if he was raised? That means he is God. That means he deserves our absolute devotion and worship. That means he is ruling and reigning right now. And it means he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. There is no time to waste Have you believed in Jesus already? The invitation this morning is, he's ready for you. Come and place your faith in him. He wants to know you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Oh God, I don't claim to know the the process by which you caused me or any one of us in this room to believe. I think it must be some type of miracle, but that also involved us and what we saw and believed and and where our heart was at that time. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who is just beginning to believe, we say to that person, you're in the right place. We're glad you're here. We pray that you would have courage to continue in that journey. And Lord, for those of us here who have believed for a long time, may we be ready to help those around us 
who have serious questions. May we love you with our minds. In the name of Jesus, we pray.